Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Inside Try Show with Helen Murray. This is the podcast that takes a deeper look at the sport with in-depth interviews and special episodes to keep you entertained and inspired while you're training. And we're rolling. Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the Inside Try Show, sponsored by Long Range Fuel. I'm Helen Murray and this is the weekly podcast bringing you the best interviews in triathlon and beyond. Now, I'm pretty much going to head straight into this week's interview as it is a little bit longer than normal. And that is because Max Thorpe has one incredible story to tell. Earlier this year, he and his teammate Dave Spellman broke the world record for rowing across the Atlantic, finishing in a very rapid 37 days. But in 2017, Max's attempt at that very same challenge ended in complete disaster. In fact, it turned into a near-death experience. And you're going to hear a remarkable story of survival. Hopefully, you'll be as gripped as I was listening to Max. He also talks about gearing up to do Ironman Nice this autumn, clearly before it was cancelled. So you're going to hear about his plan B. And that comes towards the end of the interview. So there is a nice triathlon link and that is pretty cool. And there's also a really nice connection between Max and show sponsors Long Range Fuel from Resilient Nutrition because they were part of his successful world record breaking row across the Atlantic. I'm not really going to say much more, but hopefully this interview is going to keep you company on the long run that you have just set off of right now. Or maybe it'll inspire you as you spin your legs out on the turbo. Or maybe, a bit like my mum, you enjoy listening to it while you are out walking. Max Thorpe, welcome to the Inside Tri Show podcast. First of all, how are you? Thank you very much, Helen. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm well. Um, 
it's been a funny year. It's not been the one um, I had planned for along with the rest of the world. So um, it's been a, a, a kind of a year of adapting, I suppose, to, to um, the new environment. But um, overall, I'm good, healthy, fit and, you know, those important things. So um, very well, thank you. Good. And and so you said it's not been the year that you had expected. What kind of adventures or crazy challenges were you due to be doing this year? I think it's yeah, I think it's less it's less that. It's more um it's probably more the, the crazy challenges that were that preceded this year. Um I think is is probably where um where things have, have kind of not gone to plan this year. Um but uh but yeah, so I think it was really there was a, a sort of um a post race life um that i i was kind of moving into this year after a five-year sort of journey of a particular challenge i was taking on so i think in 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 that sense uh i kind of had a lot of plans for how life might look might look after that had been completed and, and was um there had been a line drawn um kind of underneath that but uh it's it certainly yeah not exactly how i planned this year you know how how some people um, suffer from something like post race blues, or after a big challenge, there is sometimes that gap of uh, what next. And I guess for you this year, that probably has been—I don't know—is has that been amplified because you haven't been able to do some of that stuff that maybe you had planned? Yeah, definitely, um, without a doubt. I think look at you know any anyone. Um, you know, I'm a very sort of goal orientated person. So um, having had a massive goal for five plus years that I was building towards um, and the journey, you know, the journey towards that wasn't exactly a smooth sailing. Um, and I think that there's there's a sense that when that finished, there was a void. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's a strange one because, as I said, the sort of the, the plans that you make for... Um, after a goal tend to be quite vague sometimes because there needs to be such a focus uh, and such a commitment to the day-to-day processes of building towards that goal Um, and and I think that as as I kind of moved into the the kind of the new life and and having not having that goal there um, then to be kind of thrown into lockdown um, was a real contrast I suppose to obviously what I had been doing a few months earlier um, where you know I was I was really kind of right in the middle of of nature um and um and the elements and so being then confined to kind of the four walls of a house is a bit of a strange transition um so i think yeah without a doubt there's there's a sense that you know you want to move into that process of okay what's next but certainly yeah it's not been it's been a bit of a barrier i think this year um trying to find out how that that looks in terms of building out a next goal or a next challenge you mentioned that it has been the like the culmination of five years of of intense work and planning and training and everything like that so just let's go back then to what 2014 2015 yeah so was there a sudden like I want to do something pretty big yeah (laughs) well yeah to be honest um just as you've said there I think I think you know my, my background was um you know, growing up for me, the most important part of my upbringing was sport. And um, I played, I played pretty much everything I could. So anything with a, a, a bat or uh, a bat or a ball, or I, I picked up anything that was competitive, I would I would give a shot and, and ended up, you know, uh, having, um, 
a, a lot of time spent on sports fields and um, a lot of tennis, a lot of swimming, um, rugby, cricket, football. So these are all things that I was, you know, really in love with as as sports. And um, and I think that competitive um, nature uh, was was really sculpted me kind of who into who I am today, and and definitely kind of built those uh characteristics that that make me um who i am as well and, and and give me my values um but when i went to university uh, i felt like i lost that um opportunity to really engage that competitive side of me and and um and i think it, it just decreased it declined over a period of a couple of years and i think that there was a bit of a wake-up call um when I started to engage that side again and think about my performance and think about um, the goals I wanted to set that were um, around, yeah, around performance, around mental and physical challenge and being able to push myself, set those goals again um, and go on a bit of a journey and a learning experience. I think, you know, naturally I love that idea of um, the learning and the growth that comes from, from setting those goals. So looking to kind of re-engage that competitive spirit, I, um, I did a, a you know a few kind of searches online for for ways in which to do that, um, and one that just uh, you know immediately caught me was this um, this row across the Atlantic, uh, a three thousand mile um, journey from the Canaries to Antigua. Um, specifically, this was part of a uh, a race um, between kind of crews from around the world um, that took on this this challenge, and uh, it's estimated to last in the region of forty to ninety days. Um, all these crews and boats are completely self sufficient. Um, uh, you're actually not allowed to take anything uh, else on board once you leave once you cross the start line. So, um, to me, kind of being out there in the ocean, the isolation. Um, almost being alone you know I, I decided that I'd, I'd like to kind of take it on as a pair so you'd, I'd do it with a, with a partner um, and you, you're rowing 24 hours a day I mean all, all these these features of this race were just kind of really kind of encapsulated me and certainly I mean obviously had you ever done had you been in a boat before Max? no and th- and that's yeah that's that's a, a slight um, interesting point around uh, when I was deciding to take this on I'd never rowed um, and I'd also never really had any sort of ocean faring experience. So um, in terms of that learning curve that I was talking about, it was incredibly steep. Um, but and, and why was it? Why was it that like the water that appealed rather than, I don't know, hopping on a, I say like you'd just do it tomorrow, but, you know, cycling around the world or mm. maybe going and kind of conquering some peaks or or something like that. What, what was it? in particular about the idea of being something tiny in the middle mm. of a massive ocean i think i think there's probably part of me that was that was riding a little bit in ignorance of of what it's like to be in an ocean and in a seven meter boat in the middle of an ocean with nothing but sort of oars to power you like that that's probably a bit of ignorance there um back in the day in 2015 but i think um ultimately it's just that that environment is just brutal and it's so unforgiving. It's so unpredictable. It's so uncertain. Um, and all those things at that point it did appeal to me. It was, it was, I just felt like, I think as, as human beings, we're so used to being on firm ground and that's what, that's how we, most of us operate every day. We know where our next step is. You know, we can see in front of us where our next step is going to be. And I think that there's something, um, really kind of startling about, um, being on water, being in the ocean, whereby it's constantly changing. There is, it is it's literally changing second by second. And, um, and that kind of 
unpredictability, uncertainty is, it was just, again, it just added to the challenge, it added to that sense of, of what need you needed to overcome um, in order to get across this ocean. And so I think that was, you know, without a doubt, yeah, that, that was a feature for me. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, that idea of, of, of just trying to be in, in an environment which was that volatile, um, was was an interesting one. I wouldn't say it was one that I was um, super excited about, but it was just one that I saw an extra element of added sort of challenge there. Was there also an element of, um, I don't know, maybe like slight kind of comfort going through school and then going through university and maybe wanting to put off, like, uh, am I allowed to say like real life for a little bit? I don't know. Yeah, really good question, I think. There's... There's certainly an element of that. I think that um, on a on a sort of personal level, um, I I wanted to. Th- th- there's you know when this challenge for me, it wasn't necessarily there was uh, there were different layers of, of sort of the reasoning behind it, and I think there was definitely an element of of proving myself. Um, and, and I think that that's that's kind of twofold. That's that's for for me internally, and and wanting to develop myself as an individual. Um, but then equally, there is that element of wanting to prove myself to others. So it's it's a sense of what can um, you know I I have the self belief and uh, to be able to take on this challenge, and and, and obviously the um, the confidence that that I could be successful. Um, and and I think there is an element of okay, so how does you know what what does that say about me if I can do this and take this on and I think that you know certainly building out um going on a journey you know in in your 20s or whenever it is you, you're always trying to discover a bit about who you are and I think maybe I didn't quite know um who I was what my what my direction was um and felt like something like this would potentially define um where I was who I would be and where I where I'd be going um or at least it would it would uncover those things as opposed to define them. So um, that was, yeah, there was, a, there was definitely a sense of that, I think, um, going into it. So then how did you convince a friend to go, come on, come, come with me for like 40 days across the Atlantic? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's definitely, there's definitely a type. Um, was that, alcohol that involved to. at all, by the way? <laughs> was there, were there any beers? Uh, yeah, I, I think over, over yeah, there, there certainly were. Um, and, and it needs it, I think, in, in its first instant. But um, I, I made, yeah, made an initial, you know, pretty kind of, uh, well, I made two initial kind of messages. One of them was, uh, first one was to my mum and asked her if it was okay if I rode the Atlantic. Um, and she she replied about 10 seconds later saying, not a chance. Um, so uh, that was that was a good start. And, and I thought, yeah, this is this is definitely going ahead now. Um, and then the second one was uh, a call to, uh, actually at that point it was a call to my friend Dave, so a very close friend of mine, um, who very much has that sort of, that, uh, that spirit, that adventurous spirit, um, but equally that athletic ability that sort of mental strength um having known him for you know many years um i knew that he was the type of guy that that would one be interested in that that sort of challenge but two would be you know you've got to be so careful who you're doing these things with if you are going to take them on um with with other individuals because um relation the relationship and the, the communication the collaboration is is a, such a focal part of a challenge like that so so dave um yeah, it was pretty quick to say yes. Uh, so that wasn't a difficult conversation, um, which which was which was helpful. Had Dave been 
in a boat before? Had he done much rowing? So, yeah, I mean, again, it would have been helpful to kind of go to someone who had loads of rowing experience and, and could cover also the ocean experience. Um, Dave had neither. So um, so that was also <laughs> a wise, yeah, a wise addition um, to the team. But but yeah, look, it was it was again, it was this sense of um, that 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 kind of. Um, embracing embracing the the learning curve and uh, the excitement of um, going on a bit of a journey and looking to to grow in in new ways and I think again it, we were very aligned on on those ambitions for sure. So you've got your um, you've got your rowing buddy like your teammate. How then do you end up at the start line of the transatlantic race? Because I think it was with a different person as well, wasn't it? Eventually? Yeah. So not with not without a few hurdles. Um, and certainly, you know, there's a there's a bit of a saying in the sort of um, ocean uh, rowing community, and I think it probably goes for several of these sorts of extreme um, sports or races, uh, which is sort of getting to the start line um, is almost considered as big as big an achievement as um the crossing itself or the race completing the race itself so um dave ended up basically getting a uh, pro rugby contract uh, about six months after we decided to do it so um into in 2016 so i had to yeah slightly kind of change uh, plan um that was the first sort of change of plan um i had and uh kind of knew it, w- it was something that was building over a few months so it wasn't a massive surprise when it happened and i was kind of ready to go to the person that i knew would be my um, my choice and uh, that was a uh, another friend of mine called Chris um, who again I just uh, to be honest it was the, the list was I was running out of options really um, the list is not a long one in terms of <laughs> people I would spend 40-50 days on a boat with doing that sort of thing and um, but I think again he was ticking all the boxes in terms of physical mental capabilities um, uh, ambition all these things that you know were really key to, to forming that partnership and again was a super close friend so um that relationship was something that that was that was definitely right for for the for the challenge again so um me and chris went forward uh and we had to raise around a hundred thousand pounds um, in sponsorship to make it happen it's, it's which it's is a, a crazy amount it's a huge amount of money and um certainly again there was an ignorance around uh how much you know that how much money that really was and how how easy it is to achieve that regardless of what challenge you're taking mm. on um so, so hard yeah really tricky and and i think that's one you know one of the main um that was one of the most difficult lessons we learned i think was was that that is not something that you can turn around in a few months it really is something that takes years and um the second thing that didn't go to plan was we had originally um aimed for the 2016 race and that got knocked over to 2017 so we arrived at the start line um of the 2017 race in december uh in la gomera which is the star island in the canaries um and we had had a you know a a a pretty tricky time to get there but it was a lot of hard work um and commitment and discipline to make it happen um over a few years so it was pretty rewarding to stand on the start line ready to go what did your training look like then to to get to that point of being able to row non-stop for what 40 around 40 days yeah it's I, I think this sort of a challenge it's it's something which um because it is in its almost in its infancy the, the sport itself of, of ocean rowing I think there's been roughly 800 
crossing attempts of oceans ever. So uh, you learn something every time someone goes across. And I also think that it, it means that there's also opportunities for sort of innovation um, in training, in um, nutrition, in strategy, all these things. And I think that um, certainly there was probably when we went into it in 2015, 2016, there was a big focus on um, the the importance of, of being someone who was experienced at sea um, or at least someone that was technically um, adept with whether it's sort of fixing things on the boat, um, being a sort of handyman, someone that really understands the systems, the mechanical systems on board, because a lot of stuff goes can go wrong um, on an ocean rowing boat. So, but I think you know one of the things I was really keen on coming from a sort of you know the sports background and the physical performance background, um, I just really wanted to make that an edge and really focus on that. So the training certainly physically was was focused around that 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 old saying of. Um, getting comfortable being uncomfortable um you know we've heard it a lot of times but um it does work you know that is something that does work you can if you can kind of push yourself to a, a pretty dark place most days then um you know you can kind of train hard and race easy as it as it's as it's saying um and i think that that's what we did we we did a lot of uh high volume um strength training so that was a big thing and i think that uh when you're pulling i mean this is you know a, a race which requires about a million strokes for a crew so um when you're pulling that many strokes over sort of 50 40 50 days it, it requires a, a level of um conditioning to particularly things like the back um and the legs and and so our focus was really around those sorts of lifts so you know deadlifting squatting um and and a lot of sort of posterior chain work uh, that was really where where we wanted to um to focus um and then and and so yeah really that was that was that was the the key to our training was focusing on those really high volume um and uh, strength sessions but equally building that in with some high intensity work um and, and i think that's really where we yeah we built up that sort of power um and that ability to to use that power over a, a number of strokes a number of days a number of weeks and then were you doing any cardiovascular work as well? Or... Yeah, so we, I mean, we we were doing a few longer sort of row sessions, obviously. But I think there's a sense that it's a different, there's a, there's definitely a different type of, um, it's, it's less, it's a very low heart rate sort of zone that you work in when you're ocean rowing. It's not like people that have used, for example, a Concept 2 or done river rowing, Um you're working at a much higher heart rate and uh and i think that the the thing about these these strokes on an ocean rowing boat is they're very heavy um and so that's why we built out a lot of the strength work because it is around sort of um a really robust posterior chain that can um that can take on a lot of weight um over, over a slightly lower heart rate so the aerobic stuff yeah was was it was a, a feature but it certainly wasn't a focus um uh, and, and there's so much, so many other areas, as I said, in terms of the technical learning that we needed to focus, that we really just made sure that we were, um, the posterior was strong, uh, the high volume stuff was a focus, and, and we were kind of able to allocate some time elsewhere. And were you fitting this all around jobs as well and work? Yeah, so we, we were, we were... Um, we were, I was obviously quite, I was fresh out of uni. So I was navigating, you know, kind of coming out of university and... Um, 
but the focus was really the row and that that project really took over obviously so and it and it had to so um i was doing some uh, project work so just some sort of um consulting and research projects in in london um which allowed give me that flexibility really to um to manage my own time um so yes there was again there was a lot of juggling but um it was something which which was helped by that sort of that design um so yeah i think it was it was certainly a a big juggling act but the the real it had to have 100 you know close to 100 percent focus to, to try and make it happen the boat can you describe how that is different to like a normal rowing boat that we might see in the olympics i know they look completely different but fill us in yeah, I mean, it. You know, you've you've got to live on this thing for for over a month. So, uh, it's got to have all of the, the kind of living facilities that you need. Uh, it's got to carry up to seventy or eighty days worth of food. Um, it's got to have certain bits of equipment, including a water maker, so a desalinator, which is um, a machine which turns seawater into drinkable water. Uh, you need navigation equipment, um, communication equipment, and then you also need a safe space to um, sleep, but equally protection from big storms. And uh, so they have kind of two shells, um, one at the front, one at the back. And uh, in the middle, there's a sort of open cockpit area where you row. Uh, so that's kind of open to the elements where you row. Um, but then for sleeping and protection, you have a sort of sleeping cabin, um, which can fit you know, snugly fit both of you in. Um, and then you've got other things, other bits of kind of key equipment that are, are required to be at sea um, that are kind of scattered in amongst that. So it's a bit seven meter uh, long boat um, and it's yeah quite a big structure uh, compared to a normal kind of river rowing boat. And then it's around 1.8 meters across. So um, yeah, designed and especially you know, designed to really be able to withstand pretty much anything that you can you can get in the Atlantic or in other oceans. The idea for me, this is obviously just me personally, but the idea of being in something so small and an enclosed space for that amount of time in such a massive mass of water, which is so unpredictable, absolutely would freak me out. I don't think you have the same reaction, though. <laughs> um, well, look, again, I, th- I think back then I genuinely, I, I didn't. There was there was a, a blissful ignorance, I think, around, around what it's like to be at sea in a tiny vessel like that um, for that period of time. And... Uh, so I, I, I will, yeah, my response to that is that, yes, back then, um, in the lead up to the 2017 race, um, that I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of that. I think there, there were moments when I would potentially fall into that, uh, I guess, a vision of, of what it might be like. And, and the, not all of them were positive, but I think I was, I'm, you know, being an optimist, I was always focused on positive thoughts and, 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 and trying to eradicate any sort of real worries um, and concerns and just try and try and focus on those things that I, I was kind of uh, looking forward to, I suppose, um, because so much of it was unknown. It's, it's amazing. And did you and Chris manage to, like, did you do quite a bit of training in that in in your vessel or was it really like beginning of the race oh right okay this is what we need to get used to <laughs> well the, the if, if you kind of look at ocean rowing say 20 years ago um when it was uh, even even younger um 
they they were basically building their boat still at the start line, and yeah. so uh, it was pretty uh, pretty kind of DIY version and and a lot of kind of spontaneity there. Um, but it, year on year, it's it's you know it's improved that sense of preparedness. Um, but even even then, you know, I think we 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 we, sh- we probably could have spent more time in that boat. Um, but I think there's there's always a sense that what what is enough time? You know, how how do you prepare? for something that is so unusual like being in the middle of an ocean you you can't just prepare for that on a you know on a lake in the uk or just off the coast of the uk um it, it just doesn't it, it can't emulate you know really what you're what you're taking on um in the atlantic did you do anything though like i don't know sail across the uh, go across the channel or go yeah, into so, island and stuff like that yeah so we did some um so we originally just to get a feel for the boat we used yeah. a, a local sailing lake um in in kent um, <laughs> we're, we're like what is this <laughs> so yeah and 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 not not a huge number of, of waves um were in that lake uh but yeah it got a lot of attention and then we headed down to the coast so we we were based in eastbourne and we would do a couple of training sessions uh, and overnight rows um along the coast so that was our our kind of you know our experience really was getting out there um in the kind of coastal waters in the uk um so that's where we built out our initial our initial experience i i love the innocence though it's amazing max i think yeah. <laughs> and and i think as we're about to hear maybe that innocence was a good thing because so you're there then in this 2016 um race a 2017 race 2017 yeah 2017 race uh, and you had left la gomera and then and it was all going fine uh, it was it was going actually better than fine which yeah. was uh, which was good so um yeah so we uh we headed out on the 14th of december and it had actually been a two-day delay on the race start due to conditions which were deemed um slightly too uh difficult slightly too um frisky yes exactly that's the right word um for to get all the crews away from the canaries because that's a big thing sometimes crews can get trapped in the canaries and the race is over for them before they've started so getting some good winds and weather that brings people out of the canaries is important um so a couple of days delay was the first uh, sign that this was going to be a bit of a fast start. Um, you could see on the on the weather maps how, um, how the wind was building and coming directly through the Canaries and firing um, across the Atlantic. And um, on the 14th, we headed out uh, and, and, you know, it was it was a baptism of fire. We were straight into uh, sort of 20 plus knot winds, um, big seas. And, and and this was, you know, really right from the word go, right as soon as we came out of the um, out of the marina. And, and when you say big, big seas, how, how big? Yeah, I think at that point, you know, we pretty much went straight into maybe four or five meter swells um so uh, yeah it's, it's really waves are very hard thing to convey to people that haven't been right in them but i mean that that's pretty that's pretty significant and um and i think you know with the winds and everything it's 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 a it's a it, immediately you feel that sense of vulnerability when you're out there and i think um yeah getting thrown into that and just dealing with it was you know in a way it was a good thing because it was all it was all we knew we thought this was just what the atlantic was like every day um little did we know that in that first sort of week uh we were experiencing some of the the some of the worst but some of the quickest in that sense um conditions that the race had seen in about 10 years so um 
these were you know these were pretty significant um in, in terms of uh, in terms of the the i guess the hecticness and the energy of the sea um and the wind speeds so it was a really, really brutal introduction to, you know, the ocean. Um, and we found ourselves um, on day nine, uh, we actually found ourselves at uh, leading the pairs race. So we were um, in the lead in first place, which was an incredible feeling. Um, and we were also sat just ahead of the world record pace uh, at that point. So um, as much as it was early stages, we were, you know, every pretty much everything was was going as well as possible, apart from the fact that we both were feeling the effects of this this new environment and that was that's physical um mentally emotional like all all these things um with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And in what sense? Like, were you just kind of, I don't know, were there doubts? Were you feeling like teary, emotional? Yeah, were you just so... thinking, oh, I, I actually, not too happy in here. Completely. I think all those things. I, I mean, you know, within within 24 hours, I, you know, I'll speak for myself, but within 24 hours, I was you have that real consideration and feeling that you do not want to be there, and um, and a massive sense of of sort of regret at ever leaving land. Um, there's so many thoughts that go through your mind, but but for sure, I was I was just feeling like I didn't want to be on that boat, um, and the enormity of thinking that you've got 39 days to go and you're feeling like that on day one um, is not an easy kind of hurdle to overcome but um certainly yeah physically we're starting to break down in that first week um seasickness kicks in we weren't eating a huge amount um so that there's a real sort of tricky patch to get over and you're adjusting to to this new environment this new sleep pattern because obviously you're rowing two hours on two hours off um roughly for uh, 24 hours a day so you're getting these tiny little bits of sleep but when you are getting sleep you're in the cabin and you're being thrown around like it's a tumble dryer. So it, it, I mean, it's not a, you know, it's not conducive to a good night's sleep like people are used to. It's, it, it's, it's, um, you know, it, it's very difficult. And I think you get maybe two or three hours sleep a day, really proper sleep. Um, wow. And so, so you're really struggling mentally, physically, emotionally, you're deteriorating. We were missing people from home. Once you start feeling med- med- physically and mentally drained, obviously you, you, your emotions start to play um, a big factor and, and all these things just culminate. And so as much as, you know, the only thing we could really focus on was just getting across quicker. And so that was, you know, that was what our focus was. We were just like, right, if we, we just need to keep rowing, keep rowing hard, because that's the only, the next time we're going to be able to get off this boat is in Antigua. So we might as well get there as quickly as we can. Um, and it got to day nine. Um, and, and one of the key features of ocean rowing is, is surfing down these big waves. So 
uh, as you as you kind of come to the top of a wave or the crest of a wave, uh, one kind of big pull on the oars and you can essentially just kind of surf down the wave, which is an incredible feeling um, and, a, and a really it, in, a, in a really weird way. Is it a bit like being on a roller coaster and kind of going down? It, it is a bit. I, I think it's. I mean, if for anyone that has done surfing or has been on a, a bodyboard yeah. or anything, I think that's that's that feeling of when you just get to the point where the wave kind of picks you up, and then you know that you're in it, and, it, and you just kind of you know drive through down um, down the front of the wave. So um, certainly, yeah, that that was that was kind of a key feature, and we would tend to when we're rowing normally um we would maybe be a kind of two and a half three knots three and a half knots something like that um which is essentially the, the same in in miles an hour um but then in on that morning we uh hit around 15 knots down a wave so i think at that point we both kind of looked at each other because we've got a speedometer we could see how fast we'd gone and i think we could tell something had just shifted in in the in the conditions and I think every day we were waking up to sort of bigger waves more um, hectic uh, sea conditions um, a higher energy and I think on day nine we really that really came to the fore and we really realized that we we were probably experiencing something a little bit different and um, but then again you know things were still going well we we were enjoying the speed. I think, you know, picking up with those winds and those seas, we were getting more speed and that was a good thing. We're still at the front of the race. Um, and then it was, it was roughly around sort of midday, I, I think um, at that point. And we were both out on deck and it's just out of nowhere. We just got picked up by a wave, a massive wave. Um, and it just came from the side and, and it was just essentially a, a huge rogue wave that had just built up um, and taken us completely by surprise. Um, and it picked us up and turned us in the air and then just dropped us um, kind of upside down onto the water. You know, we both felt that impact being on board. So the boat was capsized. So it was an enormous capsize. And you know, I remember kind of scrambling underneath the water, just you're trying to get out and get back to the surface, but you're not really sure which way's up. Um, and, and certainly there's those fears of being trapped under the boat, etc. So um, I kind of scrambled up and came to the surface. And about a second later, I saw Chris come up next to me. So we were, we were obviously happy to see that happen. We were both still attached um, to the boat, which was important. And then a few seconds later, the boat self-righted. Yep. So those sorts of things were were going to you know gone to plan and and we kind of clambered back on board um and looked at each other pretty shocked you know obviously this was this was a, a capsize in the middle of the atlantic strangely um it was literally that feeling of right that's happened that's something that you do get out here right let's let's kind of move on and try and try and keep going so um we had to communicate with the race officials because our emergency beacon had been set off in the capsize. Um, we needed to tell them that we were okay and we were going to continue. I then turned to open up the cabin hatch to grab one of the um, satellite phones and a huge kind of plume of smoke just hit me in the face. Um, and I was, uh, you know, immediately kind of slammed the door shut, turned to Chris and just said fire. All of our kind of communications, navigation and our safe space was now destroyed uninhabitable and equally just still you know still burning really so um, we managed to extinguish the flames but now it was this real kind of toxic mix of residue from the fire mix fire extinguisher and all the kind of toxic fumes from the um from the battery and so we we were facing you know a pretty startling 
um, situation at that point. Um, and, and certainly one that I don't think either of us ever expected to be in um, and not one that a crew had been in before. So uh, at this point, we, we knew that you know, we, were in, we were in a pretty difficult situation. The conditions that we were in pretty much immediately at that point changed for the worse. Um, oh, and goodness. we started to see a, a massive, enormous buildup of waves um, following seas coming from behind us. Um, and these were waves that were closing in on the sort of 15 metre mark. Uh, which which is again something just almost impossible to really convey to people. Max, um, what even goes through your head at that point? Like literally, I'm about um, to die. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's pretty. It is breathtaking to to see that size of wave. It's certainly something that you do feel like is a worst nightmare situation. Um, and there's a few things that go through your head, but I think the focus for us was was around what we needed to do in order to keep ourselves safe and we managed to make a call to the race officials to tell them what had happened um so it was yeah this was it was an incredibly frantic time but i think it was it was you know i do look back and think there was a very measured response from us both and i think that um there was a real focus on on the controllables and and a real focus on sort of what things we could do we knew that there was an initiated search and rescue, international search and rescue operation, but really we had no idea when, what, if, who, you know, would be able to come and rescue us. Uh, you know, we're literally, we're a thousand kilometers into the middle of the Atlantic in really severe conditions. A, a rescue is probably not, you know, not a simple thing to achieve um, in, the, in the easiest of circumstances, but certainly this appeared to be a very difficult situation. So I think at this stage, you know, we, we were looking for ways to just, just defend ourselves against these conditions. We didn't have the protective cabin anymore, so there was no sense of being able to defend against um, the conditions through that space. So we were really, had to, we had to face these, these waves out on deck um, and we spent about eight or nine hours defending the boat against these waves. And when I say defending the boat, I mean, this is literally getting to the crest of each wave, almost kind of vertical on this boat. Um, and then in order to get ourselves over the top, we had to throw ourselves kind of together against the stern cabin, which is at the rear of the boat, to just nudge us over the top of, of each wave. Um, so like phys- almost like physically fighting the waves. Yeah, exactly. So... I mean, we described it as rugby tackling the waves. I mean, this, this is, you know, well, rugby tackling the boat to, to get us over each wave. And it was a really exhausting duel, you know, battle really against, against these waves. And bear in mind, these waves are coming every 10, 15, 20, 30 seconds. And, and this is something that we're having to do over and over and over again to stop us from being pitch pole, which is an, an end over end capsize oh um, and so we were essentially yeah fighting these these conditions for around eight or nine hours all the way through the day um just trying to keep ourselves upright and feeling like that was the only way of of increasing our chances of of surviving um so at that stage it was yeah as i said it was it was uh, an absolutely exhausting fight that we you know after nine days of rowing solidly i mean we were now kind of emptying the reserves for survival reasons and there was there was certainly that that real um kind of pivot in mindset that was that was required which was this change from um the goal being 
Antigua, reaching Antigua, which had been there for, you know, two and a half years. And then within a few seconds, that had to switch, literally switch to survive. So then did you have that that night? Did the fending and the rugby tackling of the waves continue or then had the yeah. message got out there about uh, actually... So- there are some people out there that need rescuing. Yeah, so I think, you know, as this was going on, little did we know, but there there was a, obviously an effort to coordinate a rescue. But as, as, as the night came, we needed a different plan just because we could no longer see these waves approaching. And our what we believed to be our best option was to empty out our storage cabin, which was a very small cabin at the front of the boat. It's about the size of a sort of a, a large suitcase. So for two guys to try and squeeze in there is not an easy thing. Um, but And it's also you know, not at all designed for, for people to be inside. So we emptied out that hatch and um, basically barricaded ourselves inside there. Um, very much all sort of fetal position, yeah. really kind of constrained and confined. Uh, and in there, we spent another sort of eight or nine hours just being battered by... Um, the waves and it, it was just a horrible horrible time because it is it's completely pitch black you're, com- you're you're so confined to the space claustrophobic and these waves are hitting you like bombs really like missiles and it was genuinely difficult sometimes to tell whether we were the right way up or upside down just purely on the basis that we were just being thrown around so much and we were so tightly compact in this cabin so it was a yeah, it was a real, real struggle, um, and certainly you know one of the most difficult you know few hours and and, and um, scary few hours that, that either of us have ever had. And I think certainly one of the things that we did continue to do was focus on okay, what what can even though we are confined to this cabin, what can we do? Um, and there was a really crucial decision that I made that we would shine a laser around the horizon every kind of three hundred sixty degrees. Um, every sort of 20 minutes um, to half an hour and hope that if there was someone there, it could catch their attention. So so I did that. And ultimately, um, it did prove pretty effective in, in gaining the attention of, of, of what was coming. What was coming? <laughs> Thank you for following <laughs> up with that. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we spotted a light on the horizon in the early hours and, and I think immediately just felt like there was, you know, breathed a huge sigh of relief. Um, the problem is that what was about to happen was it was all, all about to get a, help, a whole lot worse. Uh, oh my and, god, Max! <laughs> yeah, no, it's it was it was, and I think you know, we, we both looked at each other and, and, and had a massive sigh of relief, um, and and that was very naive because as the vessel approached, um, we realised that it was a two hundred and fifty meter, one hundred ten thousand ton oil tanker, and against the seven meter ocean rowing boat in the middle of the Atlantic in a, in a, a huge storm um, is it's not it's exactly, you know, what you call a fair fight. Um, so as it came closer, um, we realized, you know, I think initially we kind of thought this thing might, might just kind of pop up alongside us, put on the handbrake um, and we just kind of step on and, and it all goes, you know, it all goes well and we're safe. Um, but this is this is you know this is not how things go. These guys had never done a, a rescue, um, and the, we had no you know communication with them, so the coordination was was completely off. Um, and as they they initially kind of approached us and almost ran us over, um, almost crushed us completely in the first instance. Um, and we came out onto deck, and I'll always remember that picture of this enormous. Um, tanker just kind of looming over us and and powering towards us um so having almost hit us 
straight on and missing us by a few kind of feet. Um, we then were kind of being kind of dragged down the side of the tanker. And at this stage, you know, we're, we're looking up and the crew above us are, they've thrown down a rope and a rope ladder, but neither was basically, neither was accessible in the conditions. And this tanker couldn't go any any slower than six knots. So that's that's how they how fast they have to go in these conditions. And they're also doing this big pitching motion from side to side um, to stop them being affected by the waves. And the sea was the sea was crazy, like the conditions were mad. And so as we kind of the, the tanker moved past us, we were almost to the back of the tanker by this point, and we still hadn't managed to get hold of this rope or rope ladder. What we realized was we started to slide underneath the tanker and the pitching oh the pitching motion was basically sucking us down um, underneath. And so the tanker started coming down on top of us whilst we were out on deck. And we knew that we were probably seconds away from, from being crushed. So Chris managed to essentially kind of leap and grab hold of the um, the rope, the single rope, and he also managed to clip his harness to a buoy which was attached to that rope, and he kind of swung off. And then I kind of had to make my my decision, and that was um, the that essentially I could only grab hold of the ladder. It was only low enough I could only grab hold of the bottom plank. So I put one hand either side of the bottom plank of the ladder and found and then kind of swung off the boat and i remember looking back over my shoulder and a few seconds later just seeing our boat just get sucked straight under the tanker and destroyed um so literally seconds away really from from being crushed um and so that was uh you know a pretty startling few um a few seconds and, and at this point now we were both just hanging on the side of this tanker and what became apparent over the, that few minutes was that they couldn't pull us up so uh, oh as much as we were dangling off the side of the tanker, um, we weren't able to be pulled up um, by um, the crew. And as our grip started to go, Chris fell, um, but was held by his harness. So he fell from the rope. He actually tried to bite the rope and, and kind of wrenched his teeth, um, but fell but fell and was kind of held above the water with this harness. Um and you were clinging on to this ladder. In the meantime, I was holding on to the bottom level of the ladder. And I then lost my grip, but I wasn't clipped onto anything because I didn't, I didn't have that option. Um, so I then fell straight into the, the ocean below. Um, and so I kind of came up out of the water to see this, just this, this reality, which will, will obviously in this picture, which will stay with me for, forever, which was Chris and the tanker just powering away. Um, at six knots and pretty much you know all hope of of me surviving um and all chances of of kind of safety being achieved kind of slipping away um and it was it yeah i mean it was something that that's a picture that i'll always always remember um that considering you know i think i was definitely considering that was going to be my fate it would just be you know not how i expected it alone in the middle of the atlantic um and I think I, I essentially just just instinctively tried to shrug off those negative feelings and just tried to start swimming. So I just immediately started swimming after this, um, after this tanker, and which is a ridiculous situation, really, when you when you consider um, everything else. So I then basically swam as, as fast as I can, you know, for a, a number a number of strokes, and I then spotted something in the water up ahead of me and it was a line that was just cutting through the reflection from the tanker's light off the water um and i i knew immediately that it was a a spare rope that was trading out the back of the tanker and it had basically been put out earlier by the crew 
uh, just by chance, they put it out um, the back of the tanker before they got the rescue, got to the rescue. So literally with my last stroke with my right hand, I managed to grab hold uh, with the, the last six inches of this rope. And um, I was then basically being dragged behind the tanker uh, and found myself just being pulled really viciously kind of through the water. And they wouldn't have known you were there. No, well, exactly. It's, at, at first, they they had been resigned to the fact that I was never coming back. Um, but then they noticed that I'd got hold. They kind of looked over the side and saw behind the tanker that I'd got hold of this rope. Um, and at that point, they then tried to start pull pull me back round towards the ladder. And I was trying to pull myself up the ladder, but knew my grip was was pretty much gone. Um, and I ended up having this, you know, this this really battle to to get back towards the ladder, knowing that that was my route to safety. And by that point, they had lowered the ladder another probably couple of couple of feet or a meter. And so I then um, I knew I had a sort of you know ten second window to maybe get across and, and secure myself to the ladder. And taking my chance, I kind of did a three three second countdown and then threw myself across uh, and managed to grab hold of the ladder, um, knowing that my grip was gone. I knew I needed to connect myself in another way and I got a little nudge of water from underneath me that just kind of pulled me into the ladder and I ended up just basically sitting on this ladder like you'd sit on a swing at that point I mean our our perspectives I've spoken about how you know this before that our perspectives were just so warped by this point of everything that happened that genuinely in that moment as I got pulled in and sat on this this ladder uh I, I genuinely felt like I was safe um, and and I think you know out, out of context, um, sitting on a swing in the middle of the Atlantic, you know, on the side of a tanker is not exactly a, a safe scenario. Um, I, I did feel safe, and slowly we started to be pulled up side by side and, and dragged over the top and pulled into um, a room on the tanker, and, and we we were both safe. What the heck goes through your mind when you're in that room? We were just flat out polaxed on the floor. I mean, my heart rate was, you know, probably north of 200. Um, adrenaline was through the roof. We were absolutely exhausted. Um, we were in shock. I mean, I don't know what was going through our head at that point. I, I remember looking at Chris in the eye. Um, we both looked at each other and definitely, you know, we, no, no words were really said. But I think, you know, we were just aware that we, we were obviously, we were, we were lucky in a way to be alive. But at the same time, you know, we 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 made it happen really we had to fight to to survive that experience and um and so yeah not not a huge number of things go through your head but certainly that soon after it's just it's relief and 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 that we we had come through do you have or have you or did you at all have recurring nightmares of that whole situation yeah absolutely um it's something it's something that i felt like consciously over the years i've um I've had control over and, you know, over the sort of the, the fallout of that, the emotional sort of mental fallout. Um, sometimes I haven't, but most of the time I've had that sort of conscious, you know, control. Uh, but certainly subconsciously, it, it's it's something that stays with me. Plenty of plenty of nightmares, plenty of, of dreams where I'm finding myself in the middle of middle of the sea um in in huge huge waves uh and, and those were yeah those started pretty quickly after that um and and right the way through the sort of fallout period and and you know the, the few years that followed i mean absolutely they featured a lot um i guess my the, the only the only pro to that is, is that i i always felt like in the dream it was always really exaggerated because it was a dream or a nightmare you know so the the waves were you know so ridiculously big that i was always like well you know 
that that's not what they're really like as much as they're big they're, they're not like 100 meters tall which is what i get in my nightmares so um but no look it was it was a real it was a real struggle and there were certainly the sort of mental scars of, of the experience even though i emerged with you know very few physical ones um so it was yeah it was it was uh, the fallout was 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 a really tricky period definitely and how how do you deal with that fallout and and the the mental scars yeah i I think that you know there's there's some there's some really there's a journey that i went on really when i when i came back was was trying to digest it all naturally there's the sense of um i think i think within 20 within 24 hours i had i'd moved from feeling lucky to be alive to feeling disappointed in the outcome and feeling frustrated and um th- but by what i felt like was a failure of some, a goal i'd set and i think there's there's a real sense around mindset and i think that um there's a there's a quote that i love which is essentially that describes that you know when you're unable to change a situation um we're ba- we're basically challenged that's when we're challenged to change ourselves and and i think that was kind of what i was facing i was facing the kind of i had to relinquish that sense of i can change what happened but how can i sort of reframe the failure reframe the experience and use it as a as a positive moving forward i guess it's that sort of external to internal shift you know it's like relinquish that control over things that can't be controlled and and focus on the future so i think for me you know there was there was a lot of um kind of internal discovery on 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 what all these things meant to me there was this sense of trying to utilize the experience I've been through and and how I might use that to to move forward in a positive way. And for me, one of the the kind of unshakable feeling was that I, I wanted, you know, it was unfinished business and that this for me was um, something that I didn't want to be defeated by. And I really felt strongly about this, this sense of um, the sense of a fork in the road. And if I went left, it would take me down one road, which would be, and, and if I chose to maybe you know, to do it again, there would be that route and then there'd be the, you know, I'm never going to go back route. And, I, and I've battled over those things for a while. But I think it was always in my um, mind that, that it was something I couldn't let go of. So that was the decision I actually came to about six, seven months later, um, was that I definitely would, would get back to the start line and I'll give this thing another go. Did you message your mum telling her that? Yeah, I mean, not quite as um, re- not quite as yeah, relaxed as I did the first time. It certainly wasn't just a WhatsApp. Um, it was it was a it was a you know a proper face to face conversation, and and there were some really difficult conversations that I had. Yeah. Um, what was it? Everyone. What was her reaction? Um, I think both both my parents were very well, incredibly supportive. You know, my my parents, my my girlfriend. Um, my sisters, everyone, all of my, my support network is incredible. And they, they, I knew they would stand by the decision. I think that it's obviously just a very tough one to, to digest, but I think there was a sense that what's best for me is best for everyone because they could tell that I was struggling with this sense of disappointment. Um, they could tell that the reasons for going back were well placed in in my mind, and also it was it wasn't a rash thing. It was a thing that I'd taken time over to digest and decide. Um, and so that sort of you know, I, I'm very lucky to have 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 that support group who 
would stand by me, even if it was the last thing they wanted. And I think they all were against it. They would have liked me not to, but they were so supportive because they knew it was right for me, um, which was enormous. And I think, you know, naturally these sorts of journeys, like <clears throat> there's a sense of kind of, is it, people sometimes say it's selfish, you know, to, to, to do these things and to make these decisions. There's definitely an element of that. Um, I mean, I just think that everyone has their own, you know, has their own, direction and, and choices and um but i think you know there, there's a lot of there was a lot of time i had to spend thinking independently around what the right decision was um, and try and cut out the noise and know that it was the right one for me without any uh, you know any of that external pressure um and those other sort of stakeholders um as it were so so having made yeah got to a point where i was i was ready i had the support of people around me um and i and i just yeah i, I knew it was the right decision i immediately felt like i had that purpose back um, which was huge and, and and kind of getting that why um back and and that idea of a direction the, the goal had had been kind of reinforced and and i think you know now i saw this value the value in going back um in it, on its own was huge and and i think that even you know, even now, the kind of the decision to go back was a huge, a huge one. But then um, there were several other goals that needed to be achieved, like getting back to the start line. And then then once I was at the start line, I could think about getting across again and all these things. So um, there was another campaign that was needed. Um, Chris, it wasn't wasn't right for Chris to go back at that point. It just didn't work for him and um, and, and the direction he was going. So that was fine. But um, as if by you know some some kind of full circle moment, Dave was was kind of had had, had vocalised that he was sort of potentially um, available. He was coming to the end of his rugby kind of career, and mm-hmm. um, and I'd said to him that I was I was you know pretty set on going back, and and so one thing led to another, and it was pretty obvious that that, that was the right thing for us to do it together. Um, and so we re- you know we had to re raise the, the the campaign started again. So another we, like hundred grand. Another hundred grand. Um, we needed a new boat. We needed, you know, all these things. It was, it was, a uh, another monumental effort we knew it would be to get to the start line. But, um, again, it's, you know, it's that level of discipline and commitment that's necessary to, to make these things happen. Um, and we found ourselves, uh, getting back to the start line in, in December, 2019. Were weather conditions just a little bit better this time? <laughs> I mean, Yes, and <laughs> I mean yes and no, um, but but certainly uh, you know one thing was for sure um, the difference to you know between Max in at the start of the twenty seventeen race and Max at the start of the twenty nineteen race um, was you know it's really incomparable. Um, it was this sense of you know the first time around was this bliss of ignorance and a real real no no real sort of knowledge of of what I was going into and then that was now replaced by knowledge and experience of a worst case scenario um that sort of shift in 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 mindset um and the way that I prepared was definitely a big part of the preparedness side was was covered much much more and when we got on the tanker about 24 hours later, I actually grabbed a pen and paper. Uh, and at this point, I didn't know that I'd ever do it again. But I started writing down all the things I would do differently and all the things I'd do the same. Um, if I ever, Yeah, exactly. Um, if I'd ever do it again. And, and that actually formed the kind of blueprint for um, the second race. And that alleviated, you know, a lot of things that I knew would be tricky out there. And I think that sort of level of planning just increased and, and certainly helped. So yeah, we, we set off uh, on 12th of December. Um, 
And it was a year which it started quickly. So there was another, we came kind of came out the gates and were straight into some pretty hectic conditions. So we kind of went in and, and had a fast, pretty fast start. We knew we wanted to get out ahead of the rest of the, the field and the rest of the competitors. Um, and we got straight up ahead and, and were, were kind of leading the race and, and things were going really, really well. Um, again, a similar start. And, and we battled right the way through and, um, and, and, and really kind of, executed on our plan um and and not only did we end up uh, getting across um but we uh, actually finished the race um on january the 18th and we were in first place so we'd won the race uh, in the pairs um and we had also uh, not only that but we'd also set a new world record um so we were now the fastest the fastest pair ever to to, to row across the atlantic and that was 37 days? Yeah, so it was 37 days, 7 hours and 54 minutes. And the previous exactly. record was more like 40 days, right? Well, actually, yeah. So the previous record was, uh, again, I mean, there's there's plenty of stories, but it's probably for another time. But um, <laughs> the previous record that we were chasing was, well, uh, to, to, to give you an idea, we, we beat the previous record by 14 minutes. Yeah. So it was, it was, yeah. So, so we're talking, um, I think it was, so the previous record was, if I'm doing my, um, my maths right, uh, was 37 days, um, seven hours and four minutes, eight, eight, eight hours. Yeah. And, um, uh, what was it? Yeah. So it would have been eight hours and eight minutes. Yeah. So I think that yeah, was the yeah. previous record. So, um, we ended up in a sprint finish. So we had basically on the final day we had to row, um, 12 hours uh, sorry 14 hours together straight um which then culminated in a two-hour sprint finish um to get under the record by 14 minutes um which was which was just the, the a margin which has you know never been it, over 37 days it's just the most ridiculous margin for 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 winning so um yeah that's insane because you think about it in a triathlon uh circumstance and you kind of think about a sprint finish at the end of an Ironman which it does happen but it's pretty rare but actually it's it's like the last thing that you want at the end yeah completely (laughs) and I think that is is exactly what we had you can imagine I mean obviously the other boat wasn't beside us but you know uh, hypothetically it was yeah and, and I think yeah as you say coming down a final straight of a um of an Ironman after, you know, X number of hours and, and it being a few milliseconds between two individuals. That's basically what we had in, in, in sort of 37 day terms, whatever that is. <laughs> That's absolutely bonkers. Um, and then, Max, given that it had been such a, a learning curve disaster, let's put it that way, in 2017, mm. like, what was the sense when you reached Antigua? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was certainly surreal. Um, It's so difficult to, to kind of put into words that feeling, but it was, it was, you know, that's five years of sacrifice, hard work, discipline, commitment, just like my, I put everything into that. And, um, and I had to, I had to take quite an, you know, an untrodden path um i had to make a do a lot of things that probably isolated me in in a way because they were unusual decisions they were hard decisions and they were decisions that other people didn't have to take so i think or didn't didn't want to take and i think there's that real um 
I mean, I mean, look, the, the the sense of of achievement was was enormous. I don't think I'll ever really, and the way we finished with the record and and um, and the difference between us and the previous record, all these things, I think it was a fairy tale. Really, it was a fairy tale ending, and um, to walk away from it feeling like I had achieved everything I'd ever dreamt of achieving was a, like a remarkable, extraordinary feeling, without a doubt, and. I think that that's you know that that that's something that will, um, which will always you know, I'll always look back on that as, as probably one of the best moments I'll ever have. Um, and it was and it was it was it was an incredible feeling. I think the whole feed, you, know, you kind of you haven't seen land for for thirty seven days, and then you roll into English Harbour in Antigua in this sort of paradise, and it is a strange um, world to suddenly bring yourself into when you've you know you've not got on a plane to get there you've just you've just rode an ocean so um it was it was a a, a crazy kind of week but you we were just so tired so battered so um exhausted by the the experience that we um we found ourselves just you know it was just recovery and it was just being back with family and that feeling like something that i had been um carrying in terms of a burden for so long and a, and a um and a real um a real negative really that it became um around my life because of the first experience i think that you know that sense of um relinquishing that but then equally that that um i was hugely proud of being able to turn something that was a negative into a positive and so for me that was a you know that was a a huge sense of of of, um, achievement without a doubt long range fuel resilient nutrition long range fuel have been sponsoring the podcast you actually were key, weren't you, in part of the development of the product because you used it during the row. Absolutely. So the Resilient Nutrition Long Range Fuel was was very much something that was born in uh, in that row. So <laughs> it, it was literally born in that row. So I, you know, me and Ali connected um, relatively early on in the in the second campaign, um, and both of us, you know, hugely passionate about res- resilience. Um, and so uh, Ali came on board as you know very much a sort of third third man on our on our on our team, and was um, a huge support in in many ways. But um, certainly in his sort of creativity and innovation behind the nutrition side of the race. And as I said, as as a sport in its infancy, there's a huge opportunity for that. So both of us started trialing this this idea of sort of really high calorie dense, um, easily consumable um, products that could that could essentially support um, the challenge that you know of of rowing the Atlantic, which is something which you know t- you're burning eight, ten, twelve thousand calories a day. How do you support that sort of output? Um, through nutrition and and certainly um we started prototyping on this idea of a sort of nut butter based um product which um could deliver those calories in in a you know in a high calorie dense um format uh and and that was really the first iteration was these big you know what we described as sort of several things like fat bags was the first thing that we (laughs) we kind of started calling them um and uh, but ultimately they were these you know these these pouches um of of uh, a nut butter based product which allowed us to to kind of get you know thousands of calories on board per day easily quickly um and in a way that was just very well um very well organized and um not only that but also they were delicious so for for myself and dave being able to 
um, really focused on that side and, 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 and feel like we were really taking care of ourselves from the nutrition perspective um, was, was so important. And that's exactly what the product did. So we used it in its first iteration. It's obviously come a long way since then. Um, we'll, we'll all admit that. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly where it began and, and has its roots. So it's, it's been enormously exciting kind of um, being able to grow it out um, this year and, and start offering it to, to other sort of endurance athletes talking of endurance athletes clearly you are an endurance athlete now you were meant to be doing Ironman Nice that has since been cancelled so there is a nice triathlon link here but you're going to do your own Ironman um have you been enjoying the training Max? I have been enjoying the training I'll tell you but it's not again it's another sort of steep learning curve that I've been on here because uh yeah as as, as you mentioned I kind of decided that it would be um a, a really kind of fulfilling interesting steep learning curve um challenge to try and go from um having never been on a road bike and not done any running um to doing an Ironman in exactly 100 days and to kind of see how you know how much I can adapt the body what I can learn about the sport um, how I can change my nutrition and, and training to, to try and get myself ready for that sort of an event um, so it's been hugely rewarding and certainly opened my eyes to the triathlon um, world and all those disciplines um, so it's I, I've really enjoyed it I mean look it's 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 certainly a different type of training to what I was doing for the row um, but it's been yeah it's, it's been hugely um hugely exciting and there's been some serious changes in my body i mean i've lost lost 12 kilos in the first 40 days of this of this challenge so um that was the first thing i think we all looked at me and and kind of said you can't you can't run and you know achieve an ironman looking like that um not that i was out of shape i'm just my natural weight and a bigger guy my natural weight's close to a sort of 100 kilos so um being able to reduce that weight initially and increase the, the training volume around running and and understand that um you know i don't want to just I, I'm, I'm i've not really used a bike before so i'm used to, you know, when you see me on a bike initially i'm I, I feel like i only thought there was a downward force you could apply i didn't realize that you you can actually use a lot more than that so um i think that's called heel stomping or, or from what i've heard um i think that was very much me at the start and i've, I've just learned you know i've learned a huge amount about how um you know the efficiency of these different areas but certainly just the training volume and being able to you know i'm lucky enough to have some um being such a beginner it, i've seen some really fast increases in in performance and output which is obviously rewarding and keeps anyone interested so um so we're doing well and it's coming up to it's just past the 70 day mark uh so we're coming into the kind of the final straight really you've got about 30 days to go until race day uh, which will be on the 10th of october Love that. And then one day, would you like to do one for real? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, um, I think, look, we're, we're, looking so this race in particular we've taken some autonomy over you know the, all the races have been cancelled so um we're we're putting a little diy route together for for me um and that's probably a good and a bad thing it gives us a bit of control but then equally i've handed control over to ali um who's the the founder of, of um, resident nutrition and he's got some pretty um kind of messed up ideas about what what a fun iron man is um so i think there's going to be some some slight um yeah slight changes in what you consider as a standard Ironman um, I think there's going to be a lot of uncertainty I think both of us you know passionate about the idea of applying resilience in uncertainty and resilience in isolation um, so I believe I will be heading to a location um, 
that he will uh, disclose hopefully shortly. Um, but I'll know I'll know nothing more um, about about what the race is, where it is, and the direction I'm going. So um, I'm pretty sure he'll just be standing at the end of every road, saying left or right, um, and then we'll see how that goes. So I think there's yeah, there's an element of spicing it up a little bit that's that's going to be really fun and. And, and certainly add a kind of extra element of, of sort of mental challenge to um, to an event like that. So kind of stay tuned, I suppose, for, for how that turns out. It's quite the story, isn't it? Blimey, I couldn't believe it. It just, like, the way he was talking about it and describing it, it just sounds like a complete and utter nightmare. It sounds really horrible. Anyway, you did hear Max talking about long-range fuel from Resilient I can't say it, from resilientnutrition.com. They are amazingly delicious, performance-enhancing nut butters. And Max mentioned the long-range fuel pouches, but it also comes in jars. So whether you are out training all day or you're working from home and you need to stay alert and avoid those sugar highs and lows and have a look into long-range fuel, you can get 10% off with the code INSIDETRY10 all lowercase over at resilientnutrition.com or follow the link in this week's show notes at insidetryshow.com. Thanks for listening to the Inside Try Show. If you want to get in touch or get a little bit more information on anything, then reach out to Helen on Instagram or Twitter at Inside Try Show. Do keep me posted on what you are up to, whether you've been racing recently. I know that there have been a few races in the UK or maybe you're heading towards a bit of a break. But thank you to 33fuel.com and comfuel.co.uk for their continued support for natural and yummy bars and award-winning ultimate daily greens 33fuel.com is the place to go use the code inside 33 for a discount at checkout but if pick a mix is more your thing and you want a bit of a variety when it comes to energy products or maybe you want a sweat test or a water bottle then pop over to comfuel and you can get 20 percent off everything by using the code inside try. So this week's show has been sponsored by Long Range Fuel, who make phenomenally tasty performance enhancing nut butters. Until next week, when I will be back properly from my break, look after yourself, look after those around you, and we'll speak again then. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.